Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Matthew Desmond's last book, Evicted, was a surprise bestseller and one of the best books that I've ever read. It delivered a rich and novel argument that evictions were not just a consequence of poverty, but a root cause. The book never lost its focus on the human beings just barely making it and sometimes not. His new book, Poverty by America, marshals evidence from across the social sciences to make the empirical case that poverty can be abolished and the moral case that it should be. He joins us for the hour to talk about policies and personal politics that keep people exploited, vulnerable, and in pain, and how we can make change. It's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Matthew Desmond's new book, Poverty by America, is a guidebook of sorts. If you've ever had a thought about the poor or the structural features of our economy keeping people poor or how you might be implicated in the broader economic order, Matthew Desmond has compiled the research to deepen and possibly overturn that view. But it's not merely a three-ring binder of poverty research. It's an impassioned plea to make ending poverty central to our political and personal realities. It's possible, he argues, all we got to do is do it. Poverty will be abolished in America only when a mass movement demands it so, Desmond writes. And today, such a movement stirs. Welcome to the show, Matt. It's good to talk with you again. Oh, it's great to be with you, Alexis. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a really different kind of book. You know, your last book had been built on, you know, the stuff that you did for your dissertation. It was this kind of deep research on a, a few people. This one is kind of informed by all that you've learned about how people are kept poor and exploited. But it's really more of a manifesto. Yeah, you know, I just didn't think I had a grip on these two central questions. You know, why is there so much poverty in this land and how can we finally eliminate it? And I thought that answering those questions demanded a different approach. And I was reading uh, Tommy Orange, Oakland writer. And, oh, yeah. Um, there, there. Shout out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, there's a sentence in that book that just knocked me off my chair. And he writes, you know, it's like these kids are jumping out of the windows of burning buildings, falling to their deaths. And we think that the problem is that they're jumping. Hmm. And when I read that, I was like, man, that sounds like the poverty debate. And so this is a hmm. book, you know, about the causes of poverty, how we could finally put it into it in this rich land. But it's a book about the fire. You know, it's about who started it and who's warming their hands by it. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about this book for me is that it helps explain this thing that 
we get on the show here in the Bay Area, but it's true of California and the United States generally. And it's not just the kind of fact of inequality, but the ways that that inequality is translated into the feeling of life, walking on the street, being in the city. Mm. And we were hoping you could read a little bit for us, which I, I think helps explain this dynamic on private opulence and public squalor. Yeah. As you call it, which I think is Keynes, right? Uh, this is an old term. It goes back term. to uh, the Roman historians that wrote during the time of Julius Caesar. But it was really made popular by a Keynesian economist, John Kenneth Galbraith, in his book, The Affluent Society. Um, I'll give it a shot. Okay. So as people accumulate more money, they become less dependent on public goods and in turn, less interested in supporting them. If they get their way through tax breaks and other means, personal fortunes grow while public goods are allowed to deteriorate. As public housing, public education, and public transportation become poorer, they become increasingly, and then almost exclusively, used only by the poor themselves. People then begin to denigrate the public sector altogether, as if it were rotten at the root and not something the rich had found it in their interest to destroy. The rich and the poor soon unite in their animosity toward Public goods, the rich, because they are made to pay for things they don't need, and the poor, because what they need has become shabby and broken. Things collectively shared, especially if they are shared across class and racial divides, come to be seen as lesser. In America, a clear marker of poverty is one's reliance on public services, and a clear marker of affluence is one's degree of distance from them. Enough money brings financial independence, which tellingly does not single independence from work but from the public sector. There was a time when Americans wished to be free of bosses. Now we wish to be free of bus drivers. We wish for the freedom to withdraw from the wider community and sequester ourselves in a more exclusive one, pulling further and further away from the poor until the world they inhabit becomes utterly unrecognizable to us. Mm. That's Matthew Desmond reading from his book, Poverty by America, I mean, I think what this passage really gets at is sometimes we say inequality is like corrosive, right? Mm. <laughs> um, and this is sort of the nature of that corrosion. Mm. That's right. And I think for, for those folks that are in the Bay Area, man, you can feel this, right? I mean, you can feel this. You step out of your incredibly expensive condo and your public parks and your streets and your trolleys are just, you know, there's signs of poverty and deep desperation everywhere. And I think the book makes this argument about, you know, poverty drags us all down. You know, it has a cost for all of us. And ending poverty is something that would be life changing for all those parents and workers and kids that are scraping and struggling today. But it also would be something that would give the country as a whole more freedom and happiness too, no matter how secure we are in our money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the arguments in the book is that the particularly people broad who are on the kind of broad left, anything left of center, can end up thinking about the sort of complexity that goes into, you know, what, poverty as a as a social construct, or they can just be like, well, you know, but there's these structural problems in the mm. American economy and in the global economy, but you really see this as an abdication of personal responsibility. I do. I've become more wary of any absolving theories of poverty, you know, anything that like puts the buck on someone else. And that someone else can be the poor themselves, you know, with these cruel ways of blaming the poor for their own miseries. But you can also place the buck on structure or history or, you know, Congress. 
And, you know, the system doesn't force us to stiff the waiter. The system doesn't force us to vote no on affordable housing in our community, right? That's us. And so I think the book kind of challenges this kind of conventional division between structural and individual choices. I think that we have to embrace both. And the book makes this call for us to become poverty abolitionists, which is a political project, but it's also a very personal one, too. So let's talk a little bit about what poverty looks like in the United States. I mean, just like the actual kind of what does it mean on a sort of economic basis and and then proceeding from there? So officially, poverty is just an income threshold, right? So last year, if you were in a family of four and you were making $27,000, bucks or less, you were poor. That's like one in nine of us. That's like 38 million of us. That's the population of Australia, right? Just a giant number of Americans that are struggling. But there's plenty of poverty above the poverty line too, as it were. You know, one in three folks are living in homes taking in $55,000 or less. A lot of those folks aren't quote unquote poor, but like, what do you call it? You know, when you're living in the East Bay and you're trying to raise two kids on 55K or less, you know? Right. And so there's a ton of just economic hardship above the poverty line and plenty far, far below it too. You know, Angus Deaton, the Nobel laureate economist estimated that around 5.3 million Americans were getting by on $4 a day or less, just abject hard poverty. And the money's just this part of it, right? Poverty is often this exhausting piling on of problems. It's chronic pain on top of eviction, on top of the incarceration of your loved ones, on top of um, just embarrassment and shame, on top of hunger, just on and on it goes. And so it's this tight knot of agonies and often humiliations in this incredibly rich country. And I think that should shame us. Yeah. You know, you have, uh, you wrote a lot about this in your in your previous book and the really, the experience of, of poverty for individual people, particularly in Milwaukee. But you do have um, a, a one passage that I wanted you to read that kind of goes beyond about poverty as an income threshold and, and really poverty as pain, if you could read that. Okay. Poverty is about money, of course, but it's also a relentless piling on of problems. Poverty is pain, physical pain. It's in the backaches of home health aides and certified nursing assistants who bend their bodies to hoist the old and sick out of beds and off toilets. It's in the feet and the knees of cashiers made to stand while taking our orders and ringing up our items. It's in the skin rashes and migraines of maids who clean our office buildings, homes, and hotel rooms with products containing ammonia and triclosan. In American meatpacking plants, two amputations occur each week. A bandsaw lops off someone's finger or hand. Pickers in Amazon warehouses have access to vending machines dispensing free Advil and Tylenol. Slum housing spreads asthma. It's mold and cockroach allergens seeping into young lungs and airways. And it poisons children with lead, causing irreversible damage to their tiny central nervous systems and brains. Poverty is the cancer that forms in the cells of those who live near petrochemical plants and waste incinerators. Roughly one in four children living in poverty have untreated cavities, which can morph into tooth decay causing sharp pain and spreading infection to their faces and even brains. With public insurance reimbursing only a fraction of dental care costs, many families simply can't afford regular trips to the dentist. 30 million Americans 
remain completely uninsured a decade after the passage of the Affordable Care Act. That's Matthew Desmond uh, reading again from his new book, Poverty by America, about what it would take to abolish poverty. We would love to hear from you. I mean, what's a change that you could make that would be a step toward abolishing poverty? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. Given the situation that you've laid out, just the, the pain and brutality of poverty in the U.S., most of the book really is about the people who are not in poverty, right? It's about why the rest of us have allowed this situation to continue. Yeah, this is a book about how the other, other half lives. You know, this is a book about how some lives are made small so that others may grow. And it makes a case for how many of us, and by us, I mean those of us who have some economic security, some privilege are connected to this problem. You know, we consume the cheap goods and services the working poor produce. We like big returns on our stock investments, even though those returns often come with a human sacrifice. We protect lavish tax breaks that accrue to the wealthiest among us, starving anti-poverty programs. And then we, we continue to embrace segregation. You know, we build walls around our community and hoard affluence behind those walls. And so in this way, I think that the deep causes of poverty, you know, poverty per- persists not just, you know, in spite of our wealth, but because of our wealth often. Hey, look, today, this very morning, what uh, Republicans in Congress are looking at cutting, if they end mm-hmm. up cutting anything around this debt limit uh, conversation, and it's uh, food stamps and uh, other aid for, for poor people, even, even to this very day. Um, we're talking with Matthew Desmond about his new book, Poverty by America. After the break, we'll get to some of your calls. We'll get to some of the details of the book. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Matthew Desmond about his new book, Poverty by America and what it would take to abolish poverty. Um, In the book, you note that poverty has gone up and down a bit over time in the U.S., but overall, it's kind of stayed in this fairly tight band. When I've looked into poverty over the years, I've been struck that 
the work that people do kind of gets measured against this one particular extremely annoying Ronald Reagan quote. Some years ago, the federal government declared war on poverty, and poverty won. Today, the federal government has 59 major welfare programs and spends more than $100 billion a year on them. So I think I want to start here with this Reagan quote because it's sort of, it is the wellspring of defeatist thought, I feel like, right? You know, that you, you cannot actually reduce poverty. So talk to me about how the war on poverty actually did in reality. War on Poverty was launched in 1964, uh, and Lyndon B. Johnson uh, launched it with his first State of the Union address, and they weren't just playing around. It wasn't just words. You know, they set a deadline. Uh, Sergeant Shriver, who was the kind of lead architect of the War on Poverty, said, okay, by 1976, we're going to abolish poverty in this land. And they didn't get there, but they cut poverty in half in 10 years. They rolled out Medicaid, uh, made food stamps permanent, uh, really expanded Social Security, deep investments in the poorest families in America. The war on poverty made a giant difference. And anyone who you know, has this argument that government spending can't make a huge difference just has a mountain of evidence that contradicts them. And let's just look at COVID real quick, right? I mean, during the pandemic, we cut child poverty almost in half in six months, right? Six months. How do we do that? Well, the biggest thing we did is we rolled out something called the expanded child tax credit, which was just checks for middle and lower income families with kids, you know, and that deep investment made a huge difference in in their lives. We also, you know, one of the other big wins from that pandemic era, and I want to get back to the war on poverty in a second, but on the pandemic era, right, there was also just a ton of rental assistance, which drove evictions down, right, to historic lows. Yeah, I mean, first of all, there was an eviction moratorium, this historic, amazing protection that uh, really saved lives. You know, a study out of Duke showed that the moratorium decreased eviction, or excuse me, de- decreased the death rate during COVID by 11%. Tens of thousands of people are alive today because of that moratorium. And then the government rolled out emergency rental assistance, which was basically $46.5 billion, which the result of housing organizers, tenant advocates pushing, 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 calling for this aid, and Washington responding. And that money reached over 10 million renting families. And you're right, it drove evictions to the lowest level on record. And what's enraging to, to me, right, is we see all these incredible gains in, in poverty. We saw all these kids being lifted out of poverty. We saw all these renting families finally get a, a breath, right, and some stability. And then we just, we just skip over and go right back to normal, go back to a country that has double the child poverty rate of many other rich democracies. Go back to a country where 3.6 million evictions are filed every year around the country. And I just, you know, I wish that what we did in COVID uh, to, to end poverty, to attack poverty, could become the new normal. Mm. You know, you, you note, too, just on the topic of other things that work, you write that most of the poverty reductions that can be observed in, this pre, in the pre-COVID era um, they really came in just two periods between 1970 and 1980 and between 1995 and 2000. And what I thought was really interesting about that is that feels like two extremely different pe- political periods in the United mm. States. There are just the, the differences between those two eras are, are enormous. So what do you think was working the right way during those periods versus the rest of this time? Yeah, I, I love that you're reading the footnotes, Alexis. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I knew you would, but, you know, um, you're in it. So, I mean, one of the big 
recognitions we need to make is that government aid is, is essential and it's effective, but it can't abolish poverty on its own, right? We also need a job market that's really delivering for workers. So when you think about the war on poverty, you also have to recognize, right, that it was launched when a time when one in three American workers were in a union. Wages were rising. CEO pay was reined in. But as workers lost power because unions declined, CEO pay exploded, and real wages, inflation-adjusted wages, have just become stagnant. So this is a way where, you know, you can kind of invest in deeper solutions, but you also need different solutions, solutions that often empower poor folks in the labor market and in the housing market. Mm. We've got some people um, writing in to, you know, kind of offer thoughts on on your thesis here. And, And Carol writes... I'm a volunteer English tutor of adults in a nonprofit that assists low-income Hispanic people. I'm offered to help one of my students with her income taxes. Her family makes $17,000 a year. I was shocked. Here's what I do. I donate to Second Harvest. I deliver lunches weekly for a summer program for kids who get free, reduced-price lunches during the school year. I volunteer at and buy my stuff at a thrift store so I have more money to donate. Still, it's not enough. I'm one tiny fish swimming upstream against a tide of misery. I hope the book has suggestions about what we can do through our legislators or however. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, go go ahead. No, man, I was just going to say, you know, I I love what Carol's doing. You know, she's out there. And what I think that so many of us are feeling is implicated, right? We're feeling connected to this problem. That's why many of us volunteer. That's why many of us give money away. And if those charitable works were enough, they'd be enough, right? And I wouldn't have to write a book like this. And so I think that many of us in those actions are signaling that we are done with all this poverty in our midst, that we want something else, that we want a country that makes deeper investments and actually puts the money where their mouth is when it comes to economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. I mean, here's another um, one along these lines. Another listener writes, I'm 77, live on Social Security and work all the time to help those in need in my Sierra community. So many privileged people speak of ending homelessness, hunger, lack of health care, yet all they do is talk, 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 talk. How many people who are actually homeless, hungry, unhealthy are ever part of creating solutions? This was long a part of your work, was trying to get into the field where people are working on these kinds of solutions. There's so many incredible anti-poverty organizations on the move today, and many of them are led by families who have experienced homelessness, hunger, eviction, scarcity. And so if your listeners are interested, you can go to this website called endpovertyusa.org and find out organizations working in your own community and get plugged in. You know, the movement needs um, accountants and lawyers and writers and artists. And I think, you know, for this movement to gain power, it needs to gain more people. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, one of the, Things in your book that I found most interesting and and kind of difficult to deal with too is that we actually haven't been spending less on poverty. Um, you know, I think a lot of people like to say, "Well, you know, kind of neoliberalism essentially shrunk the state, and we pulled back on the great social programs of you know, kind of high high liberalism." But you essentially find that spending on poverty hasn't really changed as much as maybe that narrative might lead us to believe that it has. Yeah, I mean, I used to buy into that narrative, too. As you know, I, I kind of come into this work through housing. And with housing, that has been, that is true, right? I mean, Reagan gutted 
the investment we made in affordable housing by almost 70%, 70%. So when it comes to certain investments, we have had this retrenchment of investment. But if you look at other kinds of investments, food stamps, Medicaid, Social Security, per capita welfare spending has increased a lot since Reagan was elected. So you have this kind of, you know, deeper investments going out the door, but not huge gains when it comes to lifting folks out of poverty. Now, again, this isn't because those investments aren't working. They are, but they're just not enough. We do not spend anywhere close to the kinds of investments other rich democracies make in ending poverty. We could deepen our investments, but also we need to attack the unrelenting exploitation in the labor market, housing market, and financial markets. So just let me give you one quick stat. You know, study from the Federal Reserve of Philly found that, you know, when cities raise their minimum wage, you know, families can pay the rent easier initially. And then the effect of that raise kind of gets diluted as the housing market kind of catches up with that raise bump. And we saw this during COVID too. We saw wages go up the first time in a long time in a major way, but also rents went up, you know, by more than ever on record. And so unless we kind of stabilize that, you know, situation, we can have um, a leaky bucket, as it were. Yeah. You know, we can make these deeper investments that don't get us as far as we need to get. Well, and what's the policy there? Rent, rent stabilization, essentially? I think everything should be on the table, honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, the rental market is incredibly broken and brutalized. And, you know, one way to think about this is just about choice, right? And if you're a low-income family, often you've got one choice about where to live. You rent in the private market and you give most of your money to your landlord or your utility company. You're shut out of home ownership and you're shut out of public housing and other kinds of assistance, right? Because the waiting list for public housing in our biggest cities is now stretched on for not only years, but decades, right? And so you got to take this this bad option because the only option you can get. So let's expand choice. Let's figure out how to make on-ramps for families into home ownership. Let's deepen our investment in public housing. Let's certainly invest in short-term solutions too, and rental stabilization and expansion of housing vouchers are two uh, that should be on the table. Yeah. Uh, one other thing before we get to some callers on the sort of leaky bucket problem, you know, you really go through uh, the uh, people may have heard about Brett Favre getting some money from the state of Mississippi. <laughs> right. I didn't quite under it was all over ESPN for weeks. I didn't quite understand that uh, that essentially that was taking money away from the poorest people of Mississippi, which is one of the poorest states uh, in in the country. Can you, how does something like that end up happening? So when Bill Clinton reformed welfare in the mid-1990s, uh, he turned it into a block grant. And a block grant is just a wonky way of saying, OK, states, we're going to allocate you money and you figure out how to spend it. And states have shown to be incredibly creative. Uh, about how they spend welfare dollars. Uh, For every dollar budgeted in cash welfare, only 22 cents arrives in the pocket of a family in terms of dollars in hand in need. So where's the rest of it go? Well, some states use it to fund Christian summer camps or anti-abortion clinics or abstinence-only education or marriage initiatives. You know, the Mississippi story was outrageous because folks used welfare dollars, dollars dedicated to the poorest families in that state, to buy trucks, you know, and to fund, you know, a physical training and, and speeches that Brett Favre uh, never gave. He uh, also gave the money back. But Mississippi is just an outlier of a broader pattern where a dollar in the budget doesn't mean a dollar in a family's hand. Mm-hmm. And we know that 
in some other circumstances, when the government does want to get money more effectively to people, they can also do that too. So it's not like it's a necessary right. condition of running one of these programs. Yeah, that's right. Many of our programs are quite efficient. Yeah. Um, let's get to some callers. Uh, Dave in Castro Valley, welcome. Hi. Uh, thanks for your show. Uh, and I'd like to ask uh, Mr. Desmond, uh, you know, I haven't read your book, but I uh, plan to read it. Uh, you know, when we're talking about inequalities, isn't that really built into the basic structure of capitalism? Uh, you know, I know we're in a mixed economy. Uh, there is government involvement. But don't we really need to talk about if we're really going to alleviate uh, inequalities, going to what Bernie Sanders was advocating, which was more of a socialistic economy. And, you know, maybe I can answer part of my own question there. Isn't that probably not going to happen? Because there still is a very large middle class, uh, maybe not as influent as before in the uh, early or mm -hmm. mid-century, but... Um, isn't that something that, you know, as long as there is a middle class and it's not just strictly poor versus rich, real change like towards socialism wouldn't happen. And, of course, the Republicans, even when they're running for office, have often, you know, turned socialism into a dirty word. Yeah. So I'd like to get your comments on that. Hey, thank you for that, Dave. Appreciate that question. I mean, it, it It is one of the questions that comes out of the book. Why not just argue for, you know, democratic socialism as a whole? I can look at a lot of other capitalist countries and see them doing a lot more to end poverty than we are. We have a particular flavor of capitalism in America, uh, a low road capitalism, a capitalism of exploitation and union busting. And so I think that we could do quite a lot to push for a capitalism we deserve, a capitalism that serves the people, not the other way around. And I guess the reason I take that road is because one of the book's arguments is that we can make incredible amounts of headway with just some small tweaks. For example, you know, a study came out recently that showed that uh, the if the top income earners in America, the top 1%, just pay the taxes they owed, not paid more taxes, right? Just stopped evading. Then we as a nation could raise $175 billion every year. That's almost enough to bring every parent, kid, and worker above the poverty line, everyone. Uh, so we have the resources. We can do this without having kind of a full-scale overhaul of what the country is. Yeah. I mean, the, the tricky part, and you bring it up in the book, is that most people with some amount of money do, in fact, benefit quite substantially from the way the system works now. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you look at the welfare state in the country and you take into account not only the benefits that are going to the poorest families, but the benefits that are going to the richest ones, things like tax breaks and wealth uh, for wealth transfers or college savings or homeownership, you learn that you know every year in the country, the top 20% of Americans, the average family, takes home about $36,000 from the government and the bottom 20% take home about $25,000 from the government. That's crazy to me. That's a 40% difference almost. And so that means we're doing a lot more to guard fortunes than we are to alleviate poverty. And then we have like the audacity, right? And the shamelessness to be like, wow, well, how could we afford doing more? How could we afford to provide everyone a safe, affordable place to live? How could we afford to make sure every kid doesn't grow up in poverty? And it's just the answer staring us right in the face. You know, we could afford it if the wealthy among us took less 
from the government. Mm. When you look at something like reforming, you know, the mortgage interest tax deduction, um, what do you think ends up driving people to give up such a such thing? Because even when there have been changes and mild reforms, it has been very difficult politically. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I uh, started stumping for uh, just a more balanced safety net when it came to housing, you know, the advocates in Washington were like, you can't touch the mortgage interest deduction. You can't reform it. You know, it's it's the third, the third rail. Yeah. And then Trump reformed it. You know, Trump reformed it during his, his tax bill. He actually put a cap on the mortgage interest deduction, something that liberal advocates have been pushing for a long time. So, it, I mean, everything's kind of impossible until it's not, you know? Yeah. I think that... I think that one of the things we just have to recognize is how regressive the policy is. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, most white families in America are homeowners. Most black and Latinx families aren't because of our systematic dispossession of people of color from the land. Most of the mortgage interest deduction really accrues to families with six-figure incomes. It's really hard to think of a policy that does a better job of amplifying our economic and racial inequalities than our housing policy does. And so we can um, we can push back against that and say, this doesn't reflect the values of who we are. Or we can just say, okay, this is how we like it as a country. But I think a lot of Americans don't want this. I think a lot of Americans want to move forward. Yeah. And I guess like we've made sacrifices in other realms. You know, We've looked in our own lives and our own consumption habits and thought, man, what am I driving? What am I eating? What am I teaching my kids? You know, And I think that we can do that with respect to anti-poverty too. Yeah. Uh, a couple of other uh, listener comments as they come in. The U.S. has the resources to end poverty, but it will not happen. One of the ways the 1% remain the 1% is by ensuring that people are too busy struggling to keep their head above water so they won't notice the wealth they continue to accumulate. Another listener writes, I don't think nicely asking the rich and powerful to give up their advantages will help. Maybe one way I contribute to being a poverty abolitionist is by challenging fellow homeowners on my next-door reply posts when people complain about the homeless, new housing develops, etc. But again, we have to overhaul our economic system, which has gotten more unfair. We're talking with Matthew Desmond about his new book, Poverty by America and what it would take to abolish poverty. In what ways do you think you maybe even unwittingly allow poverty to persist? You can uh, send us an email, forum at kqed.org, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Matthew Desmond about his new book, Poverty by America, What It Would Take to Abolish Poverty. 
We're going to get to the uh, bunch of calls. I know you're all, you've been waiting patiently. Thank you. Um, But I wanted to ask you one more broad question here. One of the things I thought a lot about with this book was the work of a guy named Thomas Pogge's moral philosopher, also argued for, you know, abolishing poverty on a global level. Um, One of the features of his thought is this idea that people basically create moral loopholes in order to evade ethical responsibility. So looking at a poor country, they'll say, well, we can't just give the country aid because the elites of that country will take all the money. And so it won't actually reach those folks. And I wonder in writing this, I'm sure you encountered many of the loopholes that people create for themselves so they don't have to take on this responsibility. How did you find, what was the kind of most effective ways that you found for helping people to close those loopholes? Yeah, I mean, I'm fairly optimistic, actually, in a way, where the country is on this matter. You know, most Republicans and most Democrats now tell pollsters that they think poverty is caused by unfair circumstances, not a moral failing. That's a big shift, you know, from from uh, the stories that we used to tell ourselves. And now we need to take this other step about, you know, really looking at how our lives might be connected to those unfair circumstances. I think, you know, we're in California right now, so let's talk about segregation, you know, and a lot how many of us, no matter our politics, really do use kind of zoning laws as this way to draw walls around our communities. And we say, gosh, I need to protect, you know, my, my housing values. I need to protect these schools. And those are the same kind of arguments that our forefathers and before them used, you know, when, uh, when blocking black families and brown families out of affluent communities. And so I just think we have to have a moral reckoning with our lives. And I do think a lot of Americans are, are primed and game for that kind of conversation. Yeah. Let's uh, get some calls going here. Uh, Jonathan in Sausalito, welcome. Hey there, what's going on? Uh, I'm so happy that you guys are having this conversation on such a broad platform. Um, I heard a few things that he said since I was waiting in queue. But I wanted to know uh, what he thought about these uh, reparations efforts going on here in California uh, throughout San Francisco. I think in San Francisco, they're saying like $5 million per person. I think that's kind of ridiculous, but if that's what they want to do, I, I think that might work. Or maybe something such as like an interest rate cap for a period of time so that people can afford more with less money. I noticed mm-hmm. that when people are trying to buy homes, if they're spending 6 and 7% in interest, you know, if that was capped maybe 1%, then people with minimum wage could afford a lot more of a house. Mm-hmm. Or maybe if they're thinking of $5 million per person, you know, $5 million can be split up 100 ways. You can give people $50,000 down payments. They can afford a mortgage in a city like that. Um, I think there are some ways to go about it, but I just wanted to know what you think about yeah. reparations and yeah, how it's hey. going in California. Thank you for what you're doing. I love, I love the topic. Thank you. Hey, Jonathan, thank you so much for calling in. Really appreciate that. Um, Matthew? That's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I think about when it comes to reparations and often – there's a, a debate that's like, well, do, do you do something about racial reconciliation or justice or do you attack the economic inequality? And I don't think we have to choose in this rich country. You know, I think that we really have to start finding a language that pushes back against that scarcity mindset, the scarcity diversion. The country certainly made enormous investments in like white homeownership. You know, after World War II through the GI Bill, we haven't had a, a bill that big you know, in terms of social provisions since or before. And I think that making these deep investments in racial justice is a beautiful thing. And it also doesn't need to come at the expense of other kinds of investments 
about ending poverty. I think that this rich nation can do both. I also loved, you know, to uh, Jonathan's um, second specific point about making loans more available. Of course, the FHA mm-hmm. used to used to back these sorts of uh, things, which made it easier for banks to do small small dollar loans. You actually propose like a really direct extension of the government really lending itself as it does in rural areas in more urban settings too. Right. I mean, it might blow the minds of California listeners, but last <laughs> year, uh, 27% of all homes sold in the United States sold for under $100,000. There's plenty of like affordable housing out there with, with respect to the home ownership market, but only 23% of those homes were financed with a mortgage. So what's going on? Is it is it riskier to, to give a mortgage to low-income families? No, it's not, actually. The small-dollar mortgages have the same success rates as big mortgages. So banks aren't not lending to poor folks and middle-income folks because they're it's riskier. It's just less profitable, right? I mean, you can make a lot more money mortgaging a $5 million home than you can a $100,000 home. And this is where the government could get involved, right? You can make deeper investments in providing uh, on-ramps to homeownership. Now, that's going to work really well in some communities and probably isn't going to work great in others. So it's one part of a, of a broader menu, I think, of deepening our investment in the home. Yeah. It's also fascinating that in a lot of areas of the country that you wrote about, renting is substantially more expensive than, than owning a home, too. Totally. I remember meeting my friend, Lakia Higby. She's in Cleveland few years ago and she was written a, renting a four bedroom home for 950 bucks a month and she was living there with her kids a couple grandkids and if she bought that home under conventional mortgage standards she'd be paying around 570 dollars a month you know mm. so that's like 4500 dollars more in her pocket every year you know and so these are the kind of steps i think we can take to you know alleviate rental burden for families that definitely could afford to become homeowners you know they're not renters because they can't afford another option. They're renters often because there isn't another option. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go to uh, Barry in Santa Rosa. Welcome, Barry. How are you doing? You know, it's funny. I called uh, while I was uh, on my way to Costco, passing up people in shopping carts and tents on the side of the main drag here in Santa Rosa. Mm-hmm. So ironic. Um, anyway, um the question that I uh, called about was, uh, is, is um, alleviating poverty um, the steps we took during the pandemic, which were very expensive, is that something we could do on a sustainable basis currently? Can our economy afford it? And I think your guests already pretty much answered that question. Yeah. But yeah. Well, there's a, there's a really interesting question that comes, comes out of this, Barry, and it goes to you know, kind of the implementation of some of these measures, right? It's like during the pandemic, we had a lot of universal measures, right, which kind of gave some money to, to everybody. Um, and there's other ways of targeting this kind of aid that might be less expensive, might more directly reach to, you know, the poorest uh, among us. Like, how, how have you come to see that? I mean, it's like kind of a classic debate within sort of policy and organizing. I think the table, the first move, right, the table setting is like we can afford it. We can afford it. You know, we can afford it if the richest among us took less from the government. We can afford it if the richest among us paid their taxes. I think that's the, the basic table setting. And then, right, you're, there's this old in poverty circles where should you, should you do a targeted program like food stamps and they are efficient and cost less. But, man, if, if, you, you know, if you're $1 above the cutoff, you don't get this aid, you know, and so they're divisive. 
or should you do universal programs, which are which are much more expensive and often reach people that don't need help? And I think there's a sweet middle spot here. You know, you can do something that's called like bigger tent targeting, and the child tax credit did this right. It really addressed itself to the poorest families in America, but a lot of middle class families benefited from that benefit as well. So you can approach it like that, or you could do something that's called targeted universalism, which is a idea that comes out of John A. Paul's work, the legal scholar at Berkeley. Where he says, look, let's just set a goal. What's our goal? Our goal might be every family in America should have a safe, decent place to live. And what do they need to meet that goal? Where someone in rural Alabama needs something different than someone in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And so let's just make sure we kind of target and address, you know, different kind of policies in the service of this larger goal. Yeah. Let's uh, spring. Let's keep going with callers here. I'm liking hearing from everyone. Uh, Greg in Redwood City. Welcome. Uh, good morning. Um, you know, I'm listening to the conversation and I get a little bit hopeless, but, you know, my own personal story is, you know, through the pandemic, I received the rental assistance. I received, the, you know, $600 checks and down employment and, you know, I was really able to flip the switch and utilize that time to open a small business. And, um, you know, year after year, I'm generating a lot of tax revenue. Last year it was, you know, over $10,000. I spent, you know, $80,000 in supplies locally with gasoline and soil and all the rest mm-hmm. of it. So, you know, that little bit of investment that I got from the government that kept me alive in that, you know, horrible time, really, I, you know, I've been able to generate a small business and an incredible amount of income for my local community. So I think there are programs out there that are really successful. And I am just, you know, thankful as I don't know what to you know, the support that I did get during that time and has, have really been able to flip the switch um, for myself. So, yeah, Greg, that's a great that's a great story. <laughs> I mean, that that was what was supposed to happen. Right. Um, I think. Uh, yeah. I mean, you say at one point in the book, Matt, just that, you know, cynicism is like the most conservative philosophy. Right. Yeah. This idea that you just we, we can't make change. And that if you help people, nothing good comes of it. Right. And I feel like, Greg, it's it's nice to have a living, breathing example of somebody who is able to turn that around. Thank you. Yeah. I love Greg's story because it shows that, like, addressing poverty, giving people the stability is an investment in the broader community. Right. Mm-hmm. So because Greg didn't have to face eviction and have that breath, he had this ability to say, like, all right, let's start this business. Let's go. And like there's been so many diplomats and scholars and engineers and thinkers and poets and pastors that have been stolen from us because we, you know, we tolerate such poverty. And look, the country is facing incredible challenges, right? Economically, environmentally, we need everyone contributing to that. And I think that this is one of the ways these deeper investments benefit all of us. I just want to, can I address the the cynicism part, the hopelessness part? Yeah, absolutely. Because look, look, this is a challenge, right? This is a this is a big challenge, but I'm hopeful, you know, and I'm hopeful because we've been here before as a country. You know, in the 1960s, we were polarized. Congress is a mess. It was obstructionist. And that's where we got the war on poverty. That's where we got the Great Society. That's where we got these incredible pieces of civil rights legislation. Why? Because social movements, especially the civil rights and labor movement, put unrelenting pressure on lawmakers. They were not cynical, right? They did not give up hope. And we cannot give up hope Today, we can't wait for the Congress to be aligned like we want. We can't wait for the right guy to come and, and assume the office. We have to start pushing now, just like our movement mothers and fathers did in the 60s. 
You know, Cliff writes in to say on this point, I'd, I'd work to reanimate movements like the Poor People's Campaign that Martin mm. Luther King Jr. was involved with when assassinated in 1968 and embrace the class struggle, which seems to me to be fundamental to the changes your guest supports. But talking about you, says he doesn't talk directly about the redistribution of wealth from the upper to lower classes that his concerns require. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I kind of have a resistance to that word, I have to be honest. I mean, I think redistribution presents wealth as something that I have because of me, because of my, you know, my hard work or, or gumption or ideas, and you're taking something away from me and redistributing it. But I think we can also talk about like, look, let's rebalance the safety net. You know, let's make sure we do a lot more to invest in equal opportunity and broad prosperity than we do to subsidizing affluence and wealth. And so I think that that redistribution causes us to kind of like go to our respective political corners. But I think that we can do a lot of good, make a lot of headway just by making a more sensible welfare state. Uh, Let's bring in Eric from uh, Santa Clara. Yeah. Hey, uh, Mr. Desmond, I really appreciate your work. And the producer asked me to keep this quick. So let me just ask you one fundamental question is, you know, what about social capital and the culture of poverty? And, you know, you mentioned increasing amounts of money given to, to these, in these social programs still hasn't done a job. Is part of the reason for that just the culture of poverty and how poor people just in general don't invest their money properly? And I just say that as a former certified poor person, so, you know, I'm not coming at this from a uh, you know cynical perspective. I've just it's something I've observed from other people I know who have, who have uh, grown up poor. They're just very, very not very good at receiving investment and making the best of it, receiving funding and making the best of it. Because um, you address that issue. Yeah. Matt, I know this is something you've, you've talked about a lot. Um, so go ahead. I mean, some of us, we live so far below the poverty line that um, we, like no amount of good financial behavior is going to get us anywhere close to stability. You know, so often folks live a little, you know, and they do things that many of us that are more secure in our money find puzzling, even just crazy. But I think that if we want folks to make better financial investments and decisions, we have to give them a sturdy ground from which to stand on, you know? And I think there is a culture of poverty in America. It's a culture of the rich exploiting the poor. It's a culture of union busting and wage theft and paying the bare minimum. We have a culture of rent gouging and milking properties and eviction. There's a culture of like sacking the poor with debt and hidden fees and interest rates. And I think the book asks us who are secure and privileged to think about how we've perpetuated this culture of inequality in the country. Mm. You know, Chris writes in to say, my parents have had tenants and have dealt with the challenges of renters that cannot meet rent regularly. My parents are not wealthy by any stretch and feel the pressure when tenants don't pay, but I also work with many that struggle to make rent even working 50 hours a week. Right. What are some short-term and long-term solutions that you realistically see being implemented? And, and what I particularly like about this question is it kind of gets to, you know, the, the difference between somebody working 50 hours a week and struggling to make rent, like that person has an extremely different life from somebody who is being paid that rent, you know? But I think in our, in our culture, it almost seems like those people don't see themselves as in that different of a situation. Yeah, I like the frame of the question too, the short and long term, because, you know, you know, we need to do things now to stem the bleeding, 
But then we need to build more enduring solutions that attack the disease and not just the symptoms. So on the short-term solution, I've long advocated for expanding housing vouchers. So it's a, that's kind of a wonky answer, but basically it just means, look, if you qualify for this benefit, you'd actually been, get it. You know, only one in four families that qualify for any kind of housing assistance actually receive it. So you can get a ticket, live anywhere you want it on the rental market, and pay only 30% of your income to rent. The voucher would cover the rest. There's a bunch of research that shows that kids who grow up in, in families that, you know, receive that kind of affordable housing assistance just flourish, you know, and are healthier and do better in school, don't face eviction and homelessness. Other advocates have different short-term solutions. They say we need things like rent stabilization or rent control. We need to actually regulate the rental market like we do food markets or, or energy markets. And I think those arguments should be taken incredibly seriously too, especially in hot markets like the Bay Area or Seattle. I think that there is an opportunity to ask real questions like, what are the returns landlords are getting? Uh, could we have a situation where landlords get a fair rate of return and still have some rent controls in place? I think those questions are, are really morally urgent today. It's also and then, yeah, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, Alex, uh, there's these, and then there's these long-term solutions too, right? Where we need to build out these solutions where we're not just stimming the, stimming the bleeding. And that's like investing deeper in on-ramps to home ownership. That's building out our public housing infrastructure. That's providing more capital to land banks to, that can make things like co-ops and democratically run affordable housing that's permanent and, and lasting. And so I love those solutions alongside the, the short-term ones as well. It's incredible, too. You can, anyone can go look in the archives of these rent stabilization boards that existed in World War II and a lot mm. of our major American cities and see a functional bureaucracy that was allowing landlords to make some money while also keeping rent stable. It's a pretty right. fascinating period of American history. Um, wanted to end with someone who's clearly on your team, Matt. Poverty, no less than slavery, is a politically sanctioned institution of violence used by those with privilege to dehumanize those without in order to exploit them for their own gain. One cannot be a moral person in our day without standing for the immediate abolition of poverty, no less than our ancestors could be moral people in their day without standing for the immediate abolition mm -hmm. of slavery. Poverty is a policy choice. It's time for the Democratic Party to be an abolitionist party. There is no acceptable less poverty agenda any more than there was an acceptable less slavery agenda. Poverty mm -hmm. must be abolished and must be abolished now. Mm. Amen. <laughs> We've been talking with Matthew Desmond about his new book, Poverty by America and what it would take to abolish poverty. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. Uh, Alexis, always a privilege. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with guest host Priya David Clemens. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.